Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, Brian Carney. Hello. Reporter on technology and privacy for the TAI. It's your first time on Shortcuts. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Jesse. Brian, on today's show, the Toronto Star gambles its soul on a casino app. Joseph Atkinson must be spinning in his grave. And where he'll stop, nobody knows. Place your bets, people. And <laughs> for once, Americans get the content after Canadians. The Wii scandal finally debuts in the US of A. Brian, today's episode is brought to everybody by Sheena Gibbs, Zach Holtz, Greg McCullough, Selena Mullen, Andrew Manderson, Kevin Spiegelberg, Ali Tucky, and Darren. My name is Darren, and I'm a musician from Calgary, Alberta, and I support Candleland because I appreciate the diversity of voices included in each program and the variety of programs offered by the show, and I also love a good Jesse takedown from time to time. Okay, so Brian, did you read this one? It's by uh, our former reporter and editor, Jaron Kerr, now with the Globe and Mail. Torstar, newspaper chain, parent company of the Toronto Star, they have decided they're getting into the gambling business. 
there's uh, going to be a big gold rush for online apps, online betting, sports betting, all this stuff's becoming legal. And the Toronto Star says that this is how they're going to fund journalism. Did you catch this? I did. Yeah, I read that. That's very interesting. It sure is. And uh, I think that like within seconds of that news uh, breaking, our own news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, was like going through the Toronto Star archives. Toronto Star, of course, is a family newspaper and is uh, founded on the Atkinson principles, looking out for uh, for the citizenry. And uh, Jonathan was curious what position they've taken in the past when it comes to gambling, especially digital gambling. And uh, here we have Dangerous Liaisons, an old star feature. Online gambling preys on the weak, the desperate, the poor, and the frightened. So why is the Ontario government so eagerly getting into bed with it? OLG set to gamble on video bingo. As bingo halls struggle, critics say high-tech game will increase addiction. Voluntary casino ban, poor payoff for addicts. Uh, Another headline, addiction risk. Experts warn increased access to gambling will increase associated mental health and social problems. Pretty clear hypocrisy, I guess. Well, it's it's new ownership, I guess, and uh, different times that they're living in financially. Brian, excuse me. The new ownership has promised us that they take the Atkinson principles very seriously. When asked about the Atkinson principles with relation to this this new gambling app, they said that the Atkinson principles will be kept in mind for the gambling initiative. Like, look, I'm not a moralizing snob here, you know? Everybody's doing it. The Globe and Mail, uh, who are they to to point a finger? You can go on a Globe and Mail cruise. They're actually booking the next Globe and Mail cruise during the the pandemic. I mean, whatever works, you know? Like, Canada Land should sell vape fluid, whatever. Uh, The Toronto Star, this isn't new. They tried selling coffee. That that didn't work. Well, I mean, at least they're they're trying something new. I mean, uh... (laughs) yeah. I suppose that they had to build up sort of ethical codes around advertising over the years that was, you know, that was supposed to be kept separate from the newsroom and newsrooms are desperate to find ways to continue to fund their stuff. So I guess we'll see how that's, how it's handled. I mean, it'll be handled badly and it'll fail, but it's a better idea than star touch. I, I, like, it's not illegal what they're doing. It's not illegal. You know, what is illegal criminal conspiracies to fix prices and establish monopolies. That's illegal. And that's why you're our guest today, because you broke some news. Can I take our listeners through the the, the background here? For sure. All right. Stop me if I get anything wrong here. Four years ago, back in 2017, Torstar and PostMedia, the two largest newspaper chains in the country, uh, who hate each other's fucking guts and have written some pretty toxic uh, things about each other. Well, they put those differences aside and got together and they whipped out a map of Canada and said, look, there are dozens of communities where we each have a newspaper and we're like two dogs fighting over the same bone. And there's not much meat left on the bone. So let's stop. Let's stop fighting over scraps. Let's stop competing for readers and advertisers in those markets. Let's cut a deal. How many newspapers did they trade with each other in that deal? Um, there were 41 newspapers in total that uh, changed hands. Okay, 41 newspapers. All of them but six were closed. Immediately, right? They swapped them and then they killed them. Pretty much, yeah. Hundreds of journalists were immediately fired. That just makes sense. That's why you do it. Those communities lost a lot of reporters. But... That was just the beginning of what those communities lost because like when you're the only game in town, when there's only one newspaper left in a community, you can really stop giving a fuck entirely. Like you can keep cutting staff, you can keep degrading the product and still be the best damn newspaper in town. And so that that's why the public is the loser when stuff like this happens, when cartel tactics occur. And that's why they're illegal, which is why uh, in 2018, federal agents raided the offices of Postmedia and Torstar looking for evidence 
that this was, in fact, an illegal criminal conspiracy. It's a criminal offense. It can be a criminal offense. Antitrust law in Canada. Now, even before they did that, when they first did their swap and kill deal, Paul Godfrey, then the CEO of Postmedia, he was denying up and down that that's what this was. And he went on the air to say, calm down. Nobody colluded to shut down newspapers. This was an honest trade. We didn't know what they were going to do, and they didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, we basically uh, wanted to consolidate our uh, footprint, but it was only today that I found out what they were doing and they found out what we were doing. There's a lot of uh, uh, synergies and efficiencies and cost saving to be do- uh, doing things. So, Brian, when I heard Paul Godfrey say that, you know, just that blanket denial, such a confident denial, I thought, well, you know, I can see where this is going. It might be obvious to you and me that this was obviously a deal to trade and kill newspapers. But unless Godfrey and the others were dumb enough to actually write down on paper, hey, let's kill each other's newspapers, then we were never going to see an antitrust conviction here. And and I was like very unsurprised when this whole thing seemed to end with a sad trombone sound in January when finally the Competition Bureau announced that it was just dropping the case. Uh, they determined no further action was needed because they would not be able to get a conviction unless they found, quote, clear evidence demonstrating that competitors reached an agreement to allocate markets. I figured, okay, yeah, they were smart enough not to create a smoking gun. But you found a smoking gun. I mean, I reviewed um, what the Competition Bureau itself had filed as evidence that were filed in order to compel testimony. And within them, there was an email that summarized the status quo and Torstar referenced discussions with Postmedia on who will terminate whose staff and also who will make the closure announcements. So like this was stuff that they were negotiating with each other in putting the deal together. Yeah. I mean, the the way it was worded was we haven't come to an agreement yet on this, but uh, we, you know, we're pretty close. And the other part of that, there was an email from executives that said that we need to determine our exposure if we are not in, they put in quotes in the email, allowed to close the publications right away if, if and when. Um, in this case, it was just a Torstar email internal that was sort of just discussing their own plans. Um, but they mentioned having cost numbers from Post Media. I'm reading from this document, the striking document that you obtained. This is an internal Torstar document from an executive, Dana Robbins. All papers will now be closed on the same day as the announcement. Metroland, that's Toronto Star's uh, chain, will only assume those leases which are on the buildings we planned to keep permanently. No decision has been made on who will terminate whose staff. Metroland's hope is that each company will terminate their own employees, but Post has not agreed to that yet. Post Media wanted it to be the other way around. Now the plan is that all employees, including sales staff, will be terminated, but the sales staff will be advised that we have a number of sales openings and that they should apply. Now, here's an interesting part, Brian. You got this document that uh, is from a letter from Post Media in which they talk about how, if the point here is that we're going to create monopolies, we're going to be the only newspaper in one community, you're going to be the only newspaper in the other, then how do we know that a year from now you're not going to compete with us in that market? Well, without limiting the foregoing, the definitive agreement will include customary non-competition and non-solicitation covenants in respect to the post-media community newspapers from post-media and in respect of the Torstar community papers from the Torstar seller. I don't know what I'm looking at here, but a formal plan to create a duopoly, but a conspiracy to trade markets 
and agree that we won't compete in these markets. I mean, what else is this? And also raises some questions about the Competition Bureau and why they did not pursue this. I mean, I think it's not necessarily as as clear cut. Um, the Competition Bureau uh, Commissioner, Matthew Boswell, um, appeared before Parliamentary Committee this last December and sort of talked about some of the changes that uh, he was looking into. And they had published guides to to businesses and in, in how the Competition Bureau is going to conduct its investigations. And it seemed to be saying that they're, they're going to treat these kinds of agreements much more often as constituting a possible criminal conspiracy under the Act. I think what the, the guidelines were saying is that very often this is going to lead to investigation. And there are just some sort of very precise things that they have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that they have done. So, I mean, I guess that's that's the job of the Competition Bureau to to do in the, in the course of the uh, investigation that they did afterwards. And unfortunately, we don't know what further evidence was given by, you know, any of the parties. Yeah. I mean, we only know what evidence we were able to, you were able to get, and it's, uh, strikes me as pretty damning. I'm pretty curious what Paul Godfrey has to say. Uh, <laughs> have you tried to reach out to him to see uh, how, how we're to kind of look at his earlier statements? Yeah. And every, every stage of the investigation we reached out, we never heard back from uh, Post Media at all. Yeah. We got sort of the same sort of response that uh, Torstar uh, generally did in, in, in other articles where you know, they just said, we're confident that we followed all applicable laws in this transaction. From start to finish, with all of the bureaucratic administrative nonsense and the, and the court stalling you and redactions and post media, no one was going to make it easier for you to get these documents. How long did it take from when you first asked for them to when you got them? The original documents were filed, I think it was December of 2018. And so, I mean, I started, I started asking then. So it was, it was really over two years um, before I was able to get them. But from the point where they should have been available, it was probably about two weeks of back and forth between, you know, the courts and the competition bureau. You know, Mark Warner, who is a um, competition trade and investment lawyer, works out of uh, Ontario and New York. He was tweeting about this. He's saying, like, the competition bureau in Canada, they bring so few cases to court which means that there's very little case law established in this country, which kind of gives them an excuse not to bring cases to court. Now you've got competition bureau investigators. They're making a case about why they didn't bring a case as opposed to making a case. He says, I just happen to think that in other jurisdictions, and I've practiced in Brussels, New York, and Washington, people would investigate and bring the case. I take a long view of this, Brian. Like This is a, a slow-moving tragedy in Canada. And it goes back a long time. The, the 51 years ago, the Davy Report was uh, calling for uh, antitrust to stop consolidation of newspapers in Canada. 40 years ago, the Kent Commission, they said we are seeing dangerous levels of media concentration. These newspaper chains clearly and directly contradict the public interest. Like 40 years ago, they were saying that newspaper competition is virtually dead. We need to break up these chains. And if you look at what happened since, you know, people say to me, now that we're seeing newspapers die, like, well, shouldn't the government do something? And my answer is always like, well, yeah. I mean, they should have done something 40 years ago. But even if rather than this toothless investigation of Post Media and Torstar, 
Imagine if they had broken up those chains, not allowed, not allowed the post media to acquire Sun, not allowed this swap and kill ag agreement, which obviously was, that was a terrible day for so many communities. If they had just not allowed those things and broken these things up and figured out some mechanism for these struggling newspapers to be returned, you know, to their employees, to their communities, we're seeing, we're seeing research out of the States that the newspapers that are actually able to turn things around, weather the storm, build up digital subscriptions, are independent, like family-owned newspapers, newspapers that did not join big chains. So there was a role for government. I mean, there might still be, but uh, instead we're going the subsidy and, you know, big tech shakedown route. I don't know what you've provided it except for kind of like cold hard proof that, in effect, for practical purposes, we do not have antitrust in Canada. I mean, I talked to a fair number of, of experts um, you know, who, who just sort of look at our situation compared to other jurisdictions. And there definitely is a consensus that Canada has a bit of a history of the laws that sort of came into effect and sort of the cultures that built up around them are ones to sort of intentionally encourage market consolidation with sort of the idea that, you know, we're, we're a big exporting nation and, uh, it makes sense for us to have, you know, a few national champions that are big enough to sort of compete with, on, you know, on the world stage and maybe in particular with, with the U.S. Yeah. We're so we that it's actually a good thing that we have uh, mega corporations and like, you know, every field has like two or three companies. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's one of the things that I think has played into, I mean, mergers of all kinds, not just in, in newspapers. I interviewed the former commissioner of the Competition Bureau, John Peckman. Uh, Peckman, you know, was already sort of on speaking tours where he was talking a lot about the reforms that need to happen. And one of the things that he centers out generally is that Canada has this efficiencies defense, it's called, when they look at mergers. And you can see that quite likely when you look at sort of the language that Godfrey was also using in that uh, initial interview, he was talking about, you know, there are a lot of efficiencies created in this transaction I mean, they even put in writing that, you know, on, on their initial court um, documents that they really felt this should be analyzed under the merger provisions, not the criminal conspiracy uh, provisions, which, you know, have a maybe a slightly lower bar of evidence, but they have this built in sort of defense that, you know, as long as this deal creates efficiencies, it's going to be allowed to go through. And you don't often see that sort of spelled out in, in the cases. But what I was told by Mr. Peckman was that, Basically, when the Bureau is investigating this kind of thing you know, and lawyers consult one another, they can just sort of lay it on the table and say, look, this creates a whole lot of efficiencies for us and, you know, this isn't going to stand. And I think that has a lot to do with why mergers are allowed to go through in, in all industries. I mean, the other really big sort of standout thing as far as international um, competition law people, you know, when they're looking at Canada they think it's sort of ridiculous that our competition bureau is actually sitting under our industry ministry and I said in Canada, mm -hmm. um, it's just, it makes no sense to have the, you know, the most heavily industry lobbied minister sort of be responsible for the antitrust law enforcement agency in the country. Right. The bureau that exists to keep huge conglomerates in check answers to a boss who meets with lobbyists more than any other minister in our federal government. To the efficiencies issue, it certainly rang a bell. It's certainly what I heard Paul Godfrey saying when he was doing his press tour. Efficiencies, efficiencies, not about killing papers. We didn't know they were going to do that. They didn't know we were going to do that. So efficiencies was what he said. He was lying. 
Brian, there's so many things, even in this depreciated, dilapidated, and sorry state that the media finds itself in. There are still stories that get reported every week that people miss, and we duly note them here. Do you have one for us? What I wanted to sort of duly note is that this this investigation, um, what was sort of interesting about it is that it was it came out at sort of the same time as another pretty high profile investigation uh, by the Competition Bureau, which was um, the grocery price fixing uh, investigation that uh, all of our major grocery retailers and that it's also been about three years, you know, since that happened, we've had very little updates about that as well. And um, so I, I think I just kind of wanted to note that that's something that um, we would hope to hear about again soon uh, from the Competition Bureau. Yeah, I think that duly noting the absence of news there is spot on. And my God, how do I hope to get people angry and excited about antitrust in newspapers when they were fixing the fucking price of bread for decades? And we can't seem to get people all that excited about that, uh, nor can we seem to get responsive results from the process on such an essential staple and egregious offense like the fixing of the price of bread. Duly noted. I have one. Brian, can I tell you this story I read in the Toronto Star? Yes. This is a student journalist in Nova Scotia, Matthew Kennedy, 25 years old. And he's driving early one morning, uh, February 2019, and he hits his Ford Focus into a man uh, named Gary Rogers. Terrible accident. Uh, windshield is shattered. He, he stops his car. Kennedy looks behind him, sees that the guy he hit is still moving, and then he drives away. And Gary Rogers later dies. Where does Matthew Kennedy drive to? He drove to his college radio station, got on the air, and then is delivering the 8 a.m. news, the lead story of which, Fatal Hit and Run, does not mention that he was the person who caused this fatal hit and run. Nine o'clock, top of the hour, it's the news, reads the news again. This is not a story that it took the police a long time to crack. Wild story, very sad story. I read that, yeah, that's really something. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community 
They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. I am the proud father of Wesley Cowan, a little boy whose April 23rd, 2006 fall from a swing set claimed his life and thrust those of us who love him into a years-long effort to turn pain into purpose by building schools in Kenya, learning that we charities and Free the Children are embroiled in scandal, and that assurances made to donors are now in question, feels like to me returning to my son's grave to find it broken open, defiled, and empty. Brian, that was American television journalist Reed Cowan um, testifying last week to our ethics committee who are looking into We Charity. I'll give the background of this, but it really came in an interesting moment where it felt to me, I don't know as a newsreader how you felt, like I felt like a lot of people were losing interest or even getting annoyed at the story, like this procedural endless thing about conflicts of interest and the implications on the Trudeau government and who knew what when, invariably scandals like that just become so tedious. And I think the public tunes out whoever your sympathies are for. But that was never what was the important part to a lot of people about this story. I always uh, continue to think that the important thing is what happened to all the money that people donated? What happened to to the donors? What happened to the beneficiaries? And we, we still don't know. And Reed Cowan testifying this extraordinary, I'm not overstating this. And, you know, a lot of MPs said the same thing. Like it it was an extraordinary moment on this committee. Here's the story. Reed Cowan lost his little boy, as he says there, Wesley. And uh, then he saw Craig Kilberger on Oprah. And as he tells it, he said, okay, I I need to do something with my grief. And I want to honor the memory of my, my dead son who died in a tragic playground accident. And so he got in touch with we, and said, I want to help build some schools in Kenya and fundraise. I'll give you some money. I'll, I'll try to raise some money. And, and they said, absolutely. They talked him out of setting up his own entity, his own charity. They said, you can just get people to write checks to us. We'll track every dollar. And his understanding was that they would be building these schools in memory of Wesley. And they launched a whole campaign around this guy. You can see why they found Reed Cowan to be like a really great fundraiser. He's sort of, you know, media-ready, great communicator, television journalist, and with this really, really touching story of trying to do something positive in the memory of his son. As Reed told it to our parliament, Craig Kilberger showed up in Salt Lake City to the first fundraiser where he got on stage, and Craig told Reed Cowan, I changed my plans. I was supposed to go on a trip with President Bill Clinton, but I wanted to be here with you instead. Together, they took to the stage. They got people to cough up millions, and... As far as Reed Cowan knew, that money was going to build these schools that uh, he, he, he was there for ceremonies where they did a whole literal song and dance and they unveiled a plaque saying this school dedicated to Wesley Cowan. And, and you know, as he understood it, it was school after school after school. So he finds out 
from Bloomberg's reporting that those plaques are being taken off and replaced with new plaques as if they had Velcro on them. This is something that we originally reported, uh, we being Canada Land. Jaron Kerr reported that um, this issue of promising donors that their funds would build a school and then the money is given and then they will watch the school and then it's like, oh, well, there isn't necessarily a school, you know, but don't worry, the money was well spent. That was something that was in his story inside the cult of Kilberger where actually a school in North America was raising money for a school in Kenya and they had that problem. And then later, the Fifth Estate did work on unveiling that, that a different type of project, uh, wells, you know, boreholes in Kenya, they were selling the same project to multiple donors. And different donors thought, I exclusively funded that, that borehole. And then another donor thought, no, I thought I paid for that borehole. And then uh, it gets written about in Bloomberg and then Reed Cowan finds out that it happened to him. And not only does he find out that his plaque was put on top of a pre-existing plaque, but that it was later taken off. And that is what he, uh, that's what he told the ethics committee. He said he felt like, he felt like they were desecrating the memory, the grave, as he put it, of his late son. And that has uh, brought this story roaring back. Did you catch any of this? I did, yeah. I'll look a little bit at the media coverage of this because it's interesting. It's interesting how Canada covers things differently and what the focus is. And you can contrast the Globe and Mail's headline. We Charity was, quote, duplicitous in its Kenya dealings, claims prominent donor Reed Cowan. Here's how Bloomberg put it. Donor says We Charity removed plaque honoring his dead child. That's not a tabloid headline. But it is a much more gripping headline, and it's a much more emotional headline. Maybe it's just the fact that it was Bloomberg, which is a big um, international news source. But maybe it was the fact that we charity, and I'll, I'll focus on how the messaging, you know, the story is influenced by the messaging and the messaging tactics. What is we to say when their former, kind of one of their star fundraisers and a big donor says these things to them and says, I want an accounting of where the money went. Because the question is not just my son's plaque should be up there. The question is, well, if you sold that same school twice, what did you do with all the money? I think that all that we charity had to do in the face of Reed Cowan's testimony was a groveling apology. And they did kind of apologize in their response to the press, but that's not all they said. They did what they always do. They kind of picked at the details and they said, well, you, you know, uh, the four schoolhouses that uh, Reed Cowan funded, they're still there. The two plaques that he requested were placed on schoolhouses. One was removed. We've put it back since. He seems to be misunderstanding what happened with an exact same song and dance ceremony for the new plaque. You know, that was probably a different school. And they said, you know, uh, we had a forensic accountant review the process it's interesting if you look, they're always very specific with their language. He, he looked at the process and said, there's nothing wrong with the process. Of course, the process isn't what was in question. It's the practice that was in question. But I think they messed up by saying that he misunderstood things and by kind of couching their apology, because that led to a second video that Reed Cowan shot in his home. I have filed a fraud investigation with the United States Internal Revenue Service calling for We Charities and Free the Children to be investigated for fraud in the United States. Today, I have a call out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to seize all records at We Charities and Free the Children property for scrutiny that is owed to tens of thousands of children all over planet Earth. 
who trusted this organization and its promises to build brick-by-brick schools through their fundraising efforts. I'm calling on Craig Kilberger and Mark Kilberger and the entire Free to Children and We Charities board stacked with Kilberger allies to step down and step down immediately. That includes David Stillman. So Brian, to kind of continue how this has opened this whole thing up again, you could probably describe We's press strategy thus far as being one of erecting a firewall to sacrifice their Canadian operation, but protect their American and UK and otherwise, uh, where, you know, the scandal hasn't gotten that much attention. And shutting down Canada, I think, was like, you know, amputating a limb, but to preserve the rest of it. Well, you know, we're recording on Wednesday. Yesterday, their American board had an unexpected, like, this must be the fourth or fifth major board shakeup, um, but it's a pretty noticeable one where the chair of the board, the former chair of the board is off. The new chair of the board is somebody who went to, like, university with Craig Kilberger. There's also on the board now uh, one of Mark Kilberger's old high school teachers and a a longtime WE employee is on the board. Uh, And there's a bunch of people who are gone from the board. One of the members now of of their Canadian board is this guy who's like a fixer for them in Kenya, doesn't live in Canada. He's a Kenyan. He's on the Canadian board. Uh, One of the people who's left the American board is David Stillman. And again, getting back to the media messaging of this, people will remember all of those friends of WE advertisements and newspapers. That was all paid for by the Stillman Foundation. Well, um, Stillman, their name did not come across well in Reed Cowan's testimony. And uh, for one reason or another, David Stillman is off the board. And I'm curious if he resigned and I'm curious why he resigned. But uh, this is definitely now spilled over. That firewall is, is down and this is raging in the States and pressure is being put on some pretty big names. So it ain't over yet. I, I admit I'm I'm sort of in that camp that you described where this has kind of gone on. I have to I have to kind of force myself to pay attention to that to that file at this point. But I, I think that what when I was listening to that, it really did sort of beg the question of of just you know if 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 you raise X amount of dollars, um, why don't you just demonstrate exactly how that was spent? Yeah, it seems that uh, you know if they have nothing to hide as they have maintained, you know it's always been through these reviews of their stuff by their own accountants or like by, you know, friends of theirs will hire some supposedly independent accountant. Well, we now have, you know, MPs in Canada are calling for RCMP and CRA investigations, calls in the States for the IRS. You'd think that like if we are to give benefit of the doubt and innocent until proven guilty, the way out of this perhaps for the Kilbergers would be like, okay, we're opening it all up. Please look over every penny. I hope that that's what does happen. I mean, my point of view in this is that there's still so much I don't know. Uh, I don't claim to know uh, everything about what they've done or haven't done. I want to know. And we're going to find out a bit more. There's a couple interesting progressions that I will I will note here. The Kilbergers, who, of course, you know, earlier on in this process uh, assured us that they were completely transparent, had nothing to hide, swore on Bibles uh, before testifying before Parliament that you don't have to swear on a Bible, but they, they insisted we're going to swear on a Bible just so you know that we're telling the super truth. Now they're refusing a request to go speak to the Ethics Committee. They're refusing. MP Charlie Angus says, you know, I do have the power to issue a summons. We'll see where that goes. And again, we're kind of like hitting on a theme here, Brian, of like uh, like Canadian lack of teeth in some of their processes. You know, uh, Victor Lee is their CFO, and it's we did some reporting on. You know, he's he's a CFO who claims credentials in countries that like 
we can't find any record of those credentials as an accountant in many of those countries. He's the CFO of both their charity and their business, which we're told by charity experts he should not be. They asked him to come testify in a previous round of committee, and he he didn't. They asked for him to come again, and he said, no, I'm sick, and they, they summonsed him, which is pretty rare. They issued a legal summons. like They have the power to do that. And this is the guy who can actually speak to the money. He can actually tell you like transactions, very specific things, and to, to get him on the stand as anyone else and you know, not knowing what question's coming next, documents in front of him, that would have been quite a deposition. I was, I was a little disheartened to, to see at the end of Reed Cowan's testimony, the committee, um, they were just talking, uh, are, are we still streaming on the internet or are we in camera? Which, which counter, you know, intuitively means, in camera means privately. They weren't sure if they were private or public, but then they're like, oh, all right, well, we're public. Uh, so Victor Lee, we're sending him the questions in advance, Yeah. And it turns out they're going to send him the questions in advance. And I, I, I feel like that's a terrible <laughs> missed opportunity because I do not suspect that um, Victor Lee will be the one answering those questions. In any event, the Kilbergers are going back on the stand. It's going to drag on. You know, this is the way it is with scandals. Like you look back on things like people were sick to death of Watergate, for God's sake. Like these things take a long time to work their way out. My last thought on this one is just um, for now, watching Reed Cowan and how powerful his testimony was and how well-crafted his YouTube video was. He even, like, cuts away to clips that he's kept. It's interesting to see, like, they obviously picked Reed, and throughout their history, they had always picked people with amazing personal stories who became star fundraisers and keynote speech givers. You can see why they liked him. You could see why Reed Cowan was an effective fundraiser. You could see why, by his own description, he raised millions for them and was such an effective tool for such a media-savvy organization. But when you enlist people like that who have those skills, who have those persuasive skills, who have that, those media skills, there's a karma thing. You don't want to betray those people because they can play the exact same game. They know how to communicate just as effectively as, as a Craig Kilberger. And it's interesting to see the turning point of this kind of hinging on Reed Cowan. Very much, yeah. I mean, the I mean the issue there where we've seen it play out so long, we've heard so many details that it's hard to pay attention is in, in – in some ways, it's kind of the opposite of of the problem that I notice in Canada a lot, where quite often sort of the response with this, you know, typically, which I guess we saw from the liberal government initially was, you know, okay, we're going to launch an inquiry, we're going to launch an investigation. And then the line sort of becomes, because there's an investigation, it would be inappropriate for me to comment on that, which is sort of the really frustrating uh, thing that seems to happen in Canada, as, as far as I can tell, more than most other countries. It's great that we are getting sort of a lot of details and seeing this fold out over over a long period and and, and all the processes uh, compared to I think a lot of the sort of scandals that happen that are sort of more uh, maybe in the government. Yeah, that's a great point. We tend to Canada the fuck out of anything, no matter how explosive or important it is. It, it's uh, you know it, just going through the archives. Oh, there was a royal commission forty years ago. Like that's the biggest thing we can do is a royal commission into the future of the newspaper. If you look through recommendation after recommendation of what should happen to save the newspapers in Canada, I don't know if any of those were actually implemented. But they, they had a commission. That's your shortcuts. Brian, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. People, you can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Brian, where can people find you? Um, you can find me at uh, BP Carney on Twitter. And um, I, I write uh, regularly on uh, tech and privacy and the TIE 
Our website is canadaland.com, where you can read uh, an article about how Now Magazine, under new management, has decided on a bold new initiative of not paying people for writing they commission. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb, with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please download our new gambling app. No, uh, please hit the link uh, in the show notes or go to canadaland.com, join, and just pay us to do journalism. We'd love it if you did. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.